Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of, my, uh, of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Father, may this fellowship, may we each, every one of us, be blessed this morning as we, Lord, just sit and bask in Your Word and and draw us into Your place of, of spirit and truth and fill us up with encouragement and joy, the prospect of life with You for eternity. May we be in fellowship with You, Jesus. And it's in Your name I pray. Amen. Well, we're in the book of praises, Sephar Tehillim, in the Hebrew, the Psalms. And the book of praises has been wisely called an echo of the Torah. Because if you go through it and you pay attention, you'll note that there are five different times where a section is listed as a book. We just finished one. We finished book one. Five books in the Psalms. Delich, a commentator, wrote, even as the Torah is the Lord's fivefold word to the congregation, the Psalter is the congregation's fivefold word to the Lord. There's a, a connection here. Spurgeon said, God presented Israel with the law, a Pentateuch, and grateful Israel responded with a Psalter, a Pentateuch of praise. And we don't know who oversaw the organization of the Psalms in this way. Because they're not necessarily chronological. Different things happening at different times when David's writing or the sons of Korah or Moses or some of the other authors. But as the Psalms are presented, they have been organized. Some believe maybe it was Ezra, the scribe who did it. Ezra, that lover of the Word of God when the people came back from exile in Babylon. Perhaps it was. And he got together with some other guys and as they began to collect the Hebrew Scriptures that they organized the Psalms. I don't know, but I am convinced that the Psalms are organized by book by divine design. I don't think this is happenstance. I don't think this is just man saying, let's put these together. I believe the Spirit wanted them together for a reason. Let me point some things out to you. Book 1 that we just finished. Book 1 is Psalm 1-41. through It's the Genesis section of the Psalms. It's the beginning of relationship with God. We really draw in. We see Jesus so much in this opening section. We hear the call of relationship. We see David in his heart. Many of the Psalms in Book 1, written by David, his passion for God, his love for the Lord. Book 1, the Genesis section. Book 2 that we enter today, Psalm 42 through 72, is the Exodus section. You'll see why in a moment. Book 3, Psalm 73 through 89, is the Leviticus section of the Psalms. They all parallel. It's fascinating. It's a wonderful study if you want to take the time to do that. Book 4, Psalm 90 through 106, is the Numbers section. And finally, Book 5, Psalm 107 to 149, is the Deuteronomy section. And then Psalm 150 is just like the proclamation of praise over the whole book. And so that's how it's organized. But I remind you of this, because today we enter Book 2, the Exodus portion of the Psalms, and that's significant. Because an obvious theme begins to emerge right out of... Psalm 42, the first psalm of book 2. You may recall the book of Exodus begins with a people in bondage. 
The people of Israel, they were 70 in number living there in Canaan. And famine struck, and so Joseph, who had already been taken down to uh, Egypt, was their second in command. And Jacob, finding out his son is alive, goes with his family of 70. They, they get down there, they settle in the land of Goshen. It's a good land. And there they survive the famine and begin to live and begin to grow and begin to prosper until they're some three million strong and they become enslaved in incredible bondage there in Egypt. And they cry out to the Lord. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 says, The sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen to this. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice. And I love how that reads. He sees a people in bondage. He sees a people discouraged and depressed and enslaved and God took notice. He sees. He's aware. The theme of the book of Exodus is the same emerging, powerful, obvious theme of book 2 of the Psalms and that is deliverance. We will see many Psalms crying out for, looking to, experiencing deliverance in this next section of book 2. Now something else very subtle but I want you to be aware of happens as well. A little change. In book 1, the name Yahweh that's translated in most of our Bibles, Lord, you know, a small catch when it says the Lord, that's Yahweh. That name is used in book 1 of the Psalms 272 times, while the name for God, Elohim, is only used 15 times. Very personal, very calling out to the name of the Lord in book 1. Book 2, it flips. Suddenly, Elohim is used 164 times. Yahweh is only used 30 times. That's a significant change. What's going on there? Well, Psalm 42 through 72 are called the Elohimic Psalms because they're the Psalms where, again, Elohim is used. That name for God in the plural. I love this because it freaks out the Jewish scholars. The name El is God, singular. The name Elah is God, plural, or two. And Elohim is three or more. And Elohim is the name applied to God throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Three or more. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our triune God, who is one God, but He is three in one. The plural form of the name. Elohim. Why are these psalms suddenly the Elohimic psalms? Why is the name Elohim, God, proclaimed more than Yahweh? Because it is the power of God that we need for deliverance. We look to the power of God, the strength. These psalms are no less personal. But they are powerful for the deliverance of the Spirit. And that's what we need. That's what we desperately need in this country, in our lives, in this world. Freeing by the powerful Spirit of Elohim, our God. These psalms are written for the whole body of God's people, even though they still come from a very personal place, as you will see. So with that in mind, we enter this new section of the Psalms, Book 2, and Psalm 42 opens right up with a specific cry for deliverance from depression. Deliverance from depression. Are you depressed? Have you been dealing with depression in your life? Sadness, a difficulty of even finding your way into the place of joy. Back in 1994, perhaps you remember the book title, Elizabeth Wurzel wrote a book called Prozac Nation. Prozac Nation came out, and then a movie in 2001 was made by the same title, uh, picked up by Miramax, but it was never released in U.S. theaters. Because people were torn about the book. There were those who loved the book because of its raw insight of this woman's sinking into clinical depression and how she struggled through all this. Others didn't like the book because they said it was self-indulgent, and it was just the same thing over and over, it never really took you anywhere, and then the book itself and the movie were just, well, depressing. So no one wanted to see it or read it. But I mention it because there were other books written that same year that suddenly began to highlight a problem in prosperous America. And that's the problem of depression. The most prosperous nation in the history of the world, and yet, here we are, 2010, and the National Institute for Mental Health tells us 20.9 million American adults suffer from some type of diagnosable mood disorder. That's not just people being sad. That's diagnosed with major depression, dysphymic disorder, bipolar disorder. That's some 10% of the population. In here, 1 out of 10 people could likely be suffering from major depression at a clinical level. And that doesn't include, again, the people who are just bummed out. Millions more 
who are having a hard time in life, who are suffering in the economy, who are worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, whose relationships are in the tank, who have domestic problems, or just general despair. That's kind of the state of things, and it, from a materialistic, physical perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We have everything in this country, and yet people are depressed. So perhaps you might, might want to call the psychic hotline. <laughs> or psychiatric, sorry, hotline. <laughs> Different thing. <laughs> psychic hotline might be good for a laugh, but psychiatric hotline. You can dial the psychiatric hotline and they will answer, Hello, welcome to the psychiatric hotline. If you're obsessive compulsive, please press 1 repeatedly. If you're codependent, please ask someone to press 2 for you. If you have multiple personalities, please press 3, 4, 5, and 6. If you're delusional, press 7 and your call will be transferred to the mothership. If you're paranoid delusional, please stay on the line while we trace this call. If you're schizophrenic, please listen carefully. The voices in your head will tell you which number to press. If you're borderline, it doesn't matter which number you press, no one's going to answer. If you're manic depressive, and you know what's funny about this, it's what people laugh, laugh the most about, you can kind of figure out where their issues are. Yeah, now no one's going to laugh like If you're manic depressive, please press 7 as fast as you can for the next 24 hours, then crash for the following 24 hours. If you have low self-esteem, this is terrible. Please hang up. All our operators are too busy to talk to you. <laughs> if you're dyslexic, press 9696969696. If you have ADD, hey, wait a minute, come back here. Oh, never mind. If you have amnesia, press 8, state your name, last name first, then first name and middle initial, address, telephone number, and your mother's maiden name. If you have short-term memory loss, press 9. If you have short-term memory loss, press 9. If you have short-term memory loss, press 9. And if you have short-term memory loss, press (laughs) 9. Thank you for calling the psychiatric hotline. You know, we have to laugh about this because the reality of depression and sorrow and heartache and low, dark days is, is heavy in our culture, in our world. It doesn't make sense, but, but there it is. Do you find yourself more apt to sigh than to sing on a given day? To groan rather than to glory. Do you find sometimes you're just feeling like you're in bondage? You're enslaved to something and you can't get out from under it. You want to. You'd like to. Joy is out there. You see it in other people's faces. You want some of that, but you can't seem to get there. Well, I've got good news for you today. The Lord sees. The Lord is aware. He has taken notice. And God holds the key for our deliverance from depression. And I believe it's right here in Psalm 42. Look at it. It's heading says it's a maskil of the sons of Korah. We've seen maskils before. A maskil means an instructive psalm, a didactic psalm, a teaching psalm. Which is interesting because as you read through Psalm 42, it does not read like a school lesson. It's a cry of the heart. It's an outpouring of passion and emotion. But it's given to the sons of Korah. I know it says a masculine of the sons of Korah. But the word probably there should be for. It can read either way in the Hebrew. A masculine for the sons of Korah. Because I don't believe the sons of Korah wrote this. They led this. By the way, side note. If anyone had reason to be depressed, it was the sons of Korah. Do you remember what Korah did? Korah's rebellion in the traveling of the Israelites. He led a whole mass of Israelites in rebellion against God. They all were killed for it. But his sons, rather than carry on their father's rebellion, his sons became the worship leaders of Israel. Which is how God's redemption works. Interesting. But it's a masculine for the sons of Korah, not just of the sons of Korah. C.H. Spurgeon says the following, It is eminently calculated to instruct those pilgrims whose road to heaven is of the same trying kind as David's was. We believe this is a psalm of David. I know it says of the sons of Korah, but a psalm of David for the sons of Korah. In all likelihood, David wrote this psalm and passed it along to Korah's sons for worship in the whole assembly. It comes from a very personal place, but it goes to a very corporate setting. Why? Because we're not alone in our despair. 
please hear this. You are not alone in sorrow. You are not alone in your depression. You are not alone when you... And that's a lie of depression. We get into the dark place and we think it's all... We're the only one here. If we would open our eyes and look around, you would find there are dozens of people in the same place as you are. The whole assembly, the whole congregation needs to sing this psalm. We're in it together, gang. The Bible tells us when one person rejoices, all rejoice. When one person suffers, we all suffer together. We're a family. And so we sing this together. Now as we know, David knew something of despair. He knew about depression. He had a hard, hard life. The first five verses of this psalm, you can divide it right in half. Five verses down and at the end of the fifth verse there's a a kind of concluding verse. And then at the end of verse 11 there's the same concluding verse. So the first half describes drawn out days of dryness. Just spiritual thirst and longing. But it concludes again in verse 5 with a statement of hope. The last six verses speak of long, lonely nights of stormy despair, but conclude with the same statement of hope again. We will walk with David this morning as he goes up and down and up and down, working through this issue of depression in light of his relationship with God, and it's impressive. This probably was another psalm written during the dark days of Absalom's rebellion, Absalom, David's son. He wrote a lot of psalms at that time. He was pouring out his heart in his pain. David may very well be back in the caves of Engedi. They're coming outside of Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem into the caves in the desert of Judea, hot, dry, thirsty land. But there in Engedi, there's a spring. And the spring trickles during some times of the year, and other times of the year it just gushes. And perhaps, before he wrote this psalm, David was sitting there at the mouth of a cave, depressed, dry, despairing, and he looks out and there hops a little gazelle. In Getty, spring of the gazelle. The little gazelle hops along, it's foaming at the mouth, it comes to the spring and dunks its head in the ice cold mountain water and begins to drink. And David turns around and writes, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, When shall I come and appear before God? Amazing. David's sorrow, in his depression, the one thing he longs for above and beyond all other things is the Lord. Just to be in the presence of God as a panting deer reminds him that refreshment can only be found in the Spirit of God. In the Spirit. Listen, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. There's something we cannot take another step without acknowledging and understanding deliverance from depression. It begins, gang, deliverance begins with new birth. Until you have had the new birth of Jesus Christ, spiritual rebirth, getting out of depression is going to be a tough thing to do. And I would say undoable. You've got to be born again. Jesus said in John 3.6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Deliverance begins with a new birth. It's the thing that eludes so many people related to depression. It's greater than any medication we can be given, any therapy offered. That's the living water that the Spirit provides. Now, something to understand here, and I've had some study in the realm of depression and psychology. Some of you know that was my master's area years ago, years and years ago. And I, and I, I got far enough into it to say, you know, without Jesus, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, without Jesus, if I can't take someone to Jesus then we're just going to be spinning our wheels. The reality is, if we seek for refreshment from a depressed soul with therapy alone, and I'm not anti-therapy or counseling, but if we seek for it in therapy, if we think that's where we're going to get refreshed, we work at a mind level and we will spin there sometimes for years. And so that's what the mind does, the soul man. We stay in that place, thinking it through and processing it over and over and and working it out. And and as soon as we worked out one aspect of our lives, there's another one to work out, which is why people stay in therapy for years upon years. I've shared before, a longitudinal study was done in counseling 
a 40-year study comparing the difference between someone in therapy for 40 years and someone surrounded by friends. And you know what the difference was? Nothing. No difference. Just the ability to talk and share and be with people was, was what mattered. If, if we think that refreshment for a depressed soul happens with the right medication, and I'm not against the use of medication, doctor prescribed in the correct way, but listen, if we think it's medication that will do it for us, what happens when we stop taking the medication? We crash again. It's all functioning at that mind, soul, or or even body level. The problem of depression, I believe, I absolutely believe, is most powerfully dealt with at the spirit level. Where the Holy Spirit of the living God, an all-powerful Elohim, our God, pours out His power, His Spirit, into our spirit. That's why we've got to be born again. Because our depression gang is a spiritual issue and has a spiritual answer that will flood mind and body. Once we receive the Father. Jesus said in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God... I like the way he phrases this. He's talking to the woman at the well, but he could be talking to you and me today. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. That's what David's saying. Oh, my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts after you. Living water is what David wanted. They can only come by the Spirit. Jesus said in John 7.38, Who who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So, if you've never been born again, if you're vague on what that means, what that looks like, how do you do that, you need to understand deliverance begins right there. You've got to be born again. You receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You get reborn. He does a marvelous thing. By the way, if you've never been baptized, that's the physical aspect, the physical representation of what God is doing spiritually. Baptism doesn't save us, but what a beautiful picture of just getting washed. God says, I want you to be baptized. Well, why, Lord? Because when you are, you will get a mental, physical picture of what I have already done in your heart in completely engulfing you, washing you, immersing you with my spirit. And it's refreshing. Very refreshing. Have you seen people come out of the pond? (laughs) And God wants that. But at a spirit level, for us to come, wow, I'm born again. That's where it starts. Deliverance begins being born again. Well, Pastor Rick, I was born again. And I still find myself depressed. Okay, read on. Verse 3. My tears, David says, have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And maybe you say, that's, that's exactly how I feel. People questioning my faith because I can't seem to get out of this place of despair. Hey, David's there. David's looking around. He knows that the people are questioning him. He's probably heard it. Snap out of it, Dave. Where's your God, man? Where's the God that you wrote all those songs about? The God that you led us in worship to? Where is He now? He's the one you told us to worship, but you're all bummed out. David says in verse 4, These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. No, No wonder David was a man after God's own heart. His greatest sorrow here in his depression, the thing he longs for, it's amazing. It's not his family. It's not his throne. It's not the golden city of Jerusalem. It's not his people. David just longs for God. He just wants to be where God is. The presence of God is the one thing David craves the most. He feels separated. He's away from the tabernacle there in Jerusalem. He just wants to go worship, but he's separated from it. He can't get there. But he remembers getting there. And I want you to note this. Not only does deliverance begin with a new birth, but deliverance is nurtured in the nearness of believers. And this is something that we lose sight of all too easily. Deliverance is nurtured in the nearness of believers. Look around. It's here. Deliverance is nurtured Right here in this silly little barn. Right here in the gathering of believers, deliverance is nurtured. What are you saying, Rick? Go to church? Yes! Exactly! 
But when I'm down, I don't want to go to church. You know, when I'm depressed, I don't want to leave the house. I don't feel like singing. I don't have the energy to pray. I certainly don't have the mental acuity it takes to sit through one of your teachings. I don't want to be there when the depression hits. Brothers and sisters, let me say this with all the love I can muster. That is when you need it the most. When you are sinking into the dark places, that's when you need to be here. Not because there's something magical about here, but because when you're surrounded by other believers praying, worshiping, pouring, expressing their faith, it does something to your heart. It nurtures deliverance. It reminds you of what you believe. As David says, I, I remember these things. I pour out my soul. I used to go along with the throng and the procession and worship. And even just remembering it lifts David's spirits a bit. He starts to say, it was good. And, and that's still in me. It is hard to stay glum. It's hard to stay down when you're surrounded by joyful thanksgiving of a multitude. Psalm 122, verse 1, David said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 29, the Lord says, you'll have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. David remembers this and you can almost see a smile spread across his face just in the memory of it. And my friends, listen, if this place isn't joyful, we have missed our new birth. If we can't come into the place, the barn here together gathers a fellowship and have laughter and joy and hugs and worship and jubilation and yet a little bit of noise, then we've missed out on, on the new birth that we've been given. You should have seen Anna Marie and Naomi yesterday when I said we're going to California and Disneyland is part of the deal. Woohoo! They were all over the house. Naomi was like the Energizer Bunny, just could not stop and just kept running up and hugging me. You know, and then she'd run away and she'd come back and hug. And I'm like, Naomi, we're trying to pack. You know? And I look at that and I think, that's for Disneyland. We are going to heaven. Praise God. I mean, how can we sit around and sing as the dear Our worship, our praise. I'm still waiting for it, gang. I'm waiting for it. I, Rob did. Last week he busted out and said, Woohoo, one person. All right. I'm just waiting for it to break out of us the realization that we have been washed and cleansed and saved and redeemed and delivered. Thank you. It's good news. We, among all people on earth, should be most joyful. And yet we still struggle. David says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Good word, David. Hope in God, I shall again praise Him. He says the same thing at the end of the psalm in verse 11. Hope in God, I shall yet praise Him. The help of my countenance... And His presence, literally. What does that mean? It means that as I worship God, it lifts my face. It means my countenance comes up as I praise. And it means as I praise, not only is my face lifted up in joy, but His presence draws near. That the worship of God is attractive to Him. Remember, we talked a few weeks back that praise is becoming to the saints. It looks good on us. It attracts the Lord to us. He wants to be in the place of our worship. And it is hard to worship an all-powerful God and keep mourning. And it's hard to worship an all-gracious God and remain distant from Him. God comes near to the worshiping heart. God comes near when the fellowship is in praise and pouring out their joy. In fact, remember back in Psalm 22, verse 3, David wrote, You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon upon the praises of Israel, or you who inhabit the praise of your people. I mean, this is this is stuff that is overwhelming in its power. That God inhabits our worship. Do you feel that? Are, are, you, are you dialed into that when we're praising and worshiping God? He inhabits our praise. He is here. 
Yahweh, yes. Jesus, yes. Elohim, absolutely. God and the power to deliver us from ourselves. But, but what if I come in and I feel down or if I feel glum? It doesn't matter how you feel. It has nothing to do with how you feel. Where does David say, you know, if I could feel better, I could praise you and then you would be near. He doesn't. He says, I will worship you. I will praise you. And it will lift my countenance. We get it backwards. Now i got to feel good if I'm going to go to church. No. No, if you feel lousy, come on. This is the best place for you to be. Deliverance, gang, number three. First one is deliverance is, is recognized or, or begins with new birth. Secondly, it's nurtured in the nearness of believers. Thirdly, it's realized in the naming of blessing. Deliverance is realized as we bless the name of the Lord. We realize, we remember, we recall. As Tom said during communion, week in and week out, we take communion. Why? Because we remember that it's grace that saves us. And even in the taking of communion, we say, wow, He is a gracious God. He loves me so much. David's there. He's not in the multitudes of praise. Not in the congregation. But even with the memory of it, he's coming into the presence of God. He's feeling a sense of deliverance. But, as often happens, he goes right back down. You've walked out of here on a Sunday and felt great only to have a phone call or or a bill come up or something happen in your life within a day and boom, you're right back down. Well, here goes David. As the drawn out day of dryness gives way to the long and lonely night, waves of despair begin to come in. Verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. That's up in the north, Mount Hermon, highest mountain peak in Israel. Possibly David is looking toward the north. As the night comes on, it's getting dark. He's alone there looking out of the cave and a storm is brewing on the horizon. I don't know for sure, but it sure seems to fit in the mood of the psalm. Storms would originate there in the north, also off of the Mediterranean Sea, but some great storms would come rushing from the north from Mount Hermon right down through the plains and into these desert regions and flash floods would happen and suddenly David is in a place of wave upon wave of despair look at verse 7 deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me please understand deep calls to deep is not some mystical spiritualism it's not some deep place in my heart is calling out to some deep place out there in the, in the abyss. No. Deep calls to deep. What David is saying is wave upon wave is crashing over me right now. Despair after despair. Despondency is crashing overhead. Your waterfalls. The word waterfall is sinur there in the Hebrew. Sinur means water spouts. And it speaks of stormy downpours and upsurges and just being flooded with depression. That's what he's saying there in verse 7. Your breakers, your waves have rolled over me. Jonah used the same language. Jonah the prophet said in Jonah chapter 2 verse 3, For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and this current engulfed me. All your breakers and your billows passed over me. That's not your rob billows, that's your billows. Rob, billow. David's in the desert. And wave upon wave of sorrow. And this picture speaks of flash floods and rocky springs surging in abrupt downpours rushing through the dry desert holds. And David says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. And note this, that's future tense. He will do this. The Lord will do this. He may not be doing it right now, David says, but the Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. We need to get this. This is so important. Number four, deliverance declares a new break of day. A delivered heart is able to declare the new break of day. Back in verse 5, he says, I shall again praise Him. Maybe I'm not right now, but I will He says down in verse 11, I shall yet praise Him. Now listen. Where depression is concerned, depression has been described as a whirlpool. You get in it, 
and it's very hard to get out. It just goes around and around. People keep spiraling in the same place. We spiral with the same issues. We're trapped in an eddy of repeated fears and concerns and worry. And that, that's a very apt picture for depression. As we go round and round. But the song of hope. David saying, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. The song of hope in a new day coming breaks the cycle of depression. It works, gang. Next time you're spinning around, start thinking about, start praising God for the fact that He's coming and you're going. It breaks that cycle. Let me ask you, do you know a new day is coming? Do you? Do you believe Jesus is coming again? Do you accept that He's going to come and He's going to take you home? Do you believe in the great return of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ? You know, when all the arid frets and dry depressions will be washed away, then allow that thought, that song of hope, to pierce the whirlpool of depression. It's one of the best things you can stop and think and say. Joel chapter 3 verse 18 says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Yeah. And the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the water of the valley of Shittim. Not a deluge of despair, but a spring of salvation. And again and again the Scriptures draw us back to that place. I'm coming. I'm coming quickly. Keep your eyes open. It's going to happen. Remember the dream hunter? I'm coming. The rapture is at hand. And when you're spiraling in that place of despair and depression, man, look up. Paul says in Titus 2.13, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, listen to this language. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining where? In a dark place. When you're in the dark place, you need the lamp of the prophecy. What prophecy? He's coming again! The whole arrow of Scripture pointing to the return of Jesus Christ to bring His people home, to be with Him forever. That is the light for your dark place. Remember that. Let it emerge. Let it break through. Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Why do you think the Bible ends? Last words recorded that Jesus said. Why do you think it ends with Him saying, Yes, I am coming quickly. So that we would continue to be distraught? Bummed out? Depressed? I'm coming quickly! Yes! It ain't no Disneyland! It's Jesus. And He's coming to be with us, to take us with Him. And so John says, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. I say it all the time. One of the best things you can work into your daily language. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Mom says, Hannah, take out the trash. Hannah, say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. (laughs) You're driving down the road. You get cut off instead of, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You get bad news. Heartbreak. Things that would pull you into the whirlpool and you say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Song of a new day gets us through the darkness of the long night. Verse 9, David, in all honesty, goes back to the Lord. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And that's what's going on around David. You know, he musters faith. But watch this, the circumstances haven't changed. I'm hoping, Lord. Nothing's changing. And it's depressing. Deliverance from depression doesn't necessarily mean deliverance from your current situation. Please hear this. Deliverance from depression doesn't necessarily mean deliverance from your current set of circumstances. It can be two very different things. I mean, don't get me wrong. Our exodus is coming. The ultimate deliverance. Pulled out, saved, redeemed, brought home forever. But the reality is, gang, the bondage of struggles and sorrows may continue. But that doesn't mean you can't be delivered from the depression that goes with it. Let me put it this way. Hope 
Hope is for now. Because we're not going to need it then. So he gives us hope for now. Because later it's not going to be necessary. Paul said in Romans 8.24, In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now, let me come back to that thought. David says something interesting here. He says, it's as a shattering of my bones. As a shattering of my bones. Literally, he says, it's like a sword through my bones. I read that and I thought, a sword through my bones. It reminded me that there was a sword, a spear rather, that went through the bones of Jesus. Right through His ribs. And what happened in that moment is one of the single greatest causes for our rejoicing of anything in history. Blood and water flowed out of Jesus. So, what does that mean? It's a testimony, gang. And it's huge. When the blood and the water flowed, it signified the absolute finality of His death and the completion of our redemption. In that moment, John said in 1 John 5.8, the Spirit and the water and the blood are the three in agreement. Get this. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. He says if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He testified concerning His Son. What do you mean? The flow of the blood and the water in that moment was God testifying to something fantastic. What, John? He says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. That when the blood and the water flowed and Jesus was dead in that moment, absolutely dead. By the way, it's absolutely stupid that people think He just swooned on the cross. That's what the swoon theory is out there. Maybe you've heard it. Yeah, He was on the cross and passed out. So they pulled him down off the cross and they put him in the tomb and they packed, you know, 150 pounds of burial pizza spices on top of him. And then they rolled the stone away and three days later, he felt better. He got up. Out from under the spices. And he rolled the stone back and came out and he was great. Strong enough to overcome an entire legion of soldiers. It's stupid. But I'll tell you what makes it absolutely unbelievable And unacceptable is the blood and the water that flowed. The moment the blood and the water flowed, a doctor could look at that and say, oh, okay, his heart burst. He's dead. And John says, the Lord tells us, that's your testimony, gang. He was dead, who is now alive. And in that death, you have been delivered. You've been delivered. Now, we get down to the end of this. And I believe this is the single most simple yet profound answer to depression I've ever heard. I've read many books on depression. I've studied depression. I've looked at it. I've counseled those dealing with it. And I have never heard anything more absolutely simple but completely profound in being delivered from depression. Listen closely. Depression happens mentally and depression happens physically. As my mind goes down from a mental place, so follows my body. You know when you start to get depressed because of worries and fears and problems and issues that your body gets exhausted. You don't want to get off the couch. You don't want to leave the house. You just it, Physical exhaustion follows mental depression. But it works the other way too. Physical exhaustion can cause mental depression. I'm at my worst late at night when I've had a long day. And Cheryl just has to look at me and say, Rick, go to bed. You know, you're bumming me out. And I go to bed and I sleep and the next morning I feel much better because I've had a little bit of rest. And so rest is key. But if we try and approach this thing from a mental level, therapy, medicine, whatever, if we try to approach it from a physical level, we're not going to get delivered. So how are we going to get delivered? You've got to get spiritual. And I'm not talking about some vague, esoteric, impractical spirituality, some weird thing. I'm talking about something that I don't believe gets more tangible or practical than this. Depression, if it originates in my body or my mind either way, it doesn't depress my spirit, it shuts it off. Depression closes that door so that I'm spinning around here in body and in soul rather than in spirit. 
But when we open the door of the Spirit, what opens that door, gang, is hope in the Spirit of God. Hope in the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God has the power to change my spirit, which in turn floods my soul, which in turn floods my body, and suddenly I am a delivered man. I am redeemed because of His powerful spiritual work. But I've got to be open to it. Well, how do I do that, Rick? Verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And here it is. Here's the key. Listen, don't miss this. Hope in God. I told you it was simple. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Hope in God. It'll change your face. Hope in God. It'll lift your countenance. Hope in God. It'll alter your demeanor from depression to delight. It sounds simple. Hope in God. So how come it doesn't work? Why am I still depressed? I hope in God. Some might say when I was a young believer, I might have gotten excited about this teaching. Yes, hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God. It's like baby steps, baby steps, baby steps, you know? That's all i got to do. Hope in God. But some of you who have walked a long time in this might say, you know, if I'm being completely honest, I've hoped in God. And I have prayed for an awful lot of things that never came to be. I did all these things, Pastor. I was born again. I got baptized. I went to church. I praised God. I even read through the entire Left Behind series. (laughs) And I'm still struggling with depression. You know why? Solomon absolutely nailed it. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What does that mean? It means we hope for something and it doesn't come. And we hope some more and it still doesn't come. And then we hope for something else and that doesn't come. And all the while we just start getting... You know, God, I've been hoping. And it's not working. I hope that you would change my financial picture and nothing's changed. And that's why I'm bummed. I hope that you would fix my marriage and nothing's changing. And so I'm depressed. I hope that you would heal my body and it's not getting healed. And so I am depressed, Lord. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I deferred my hope and God, you didn't come through. I want you to notice something about David's writing here in Psalm 42. Not one time does he hope for Absalom's salvation. Not one time does David say, I hope things get better. Not a single time does David say, I hope we can reunify father and son and the kingdom again. I hope that that things will turn out well. I hope that I can be home in my kingdom again. I hope I can be sitting back on the throne. He says none of that. What does he say? I hope in God. Absalom will get caught by his hair in the branches of an oak tree and Joab, David's commander, will come along and spear him with three spears through the heart and kill him. And David will leave the caves where he is presently, go back to Jerusalem and be lower than he is in Psalm 42. More depressed. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. But hope in God that's a different thing. The second half of that verse, Proverbs 13:12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when desire comes, it is a tree of life. But gang, the desire that brings about the tree of life in our life is the desire for God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for Not a better life, not a better financial picture, not better circumstances, not better health. So my hope longs for God. For you. Hope in God. That is not hope deferred. That's not hoping in some set of circumstances that may or may not change in our lives. Hope in God. Listen to this. Jesus on the night of His betrayal, there with the apostles, had a lot of heavy things to teach them. And in John 16, he's talking to them. And he says in verse 1, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. What are you saying, Jesus? 
Apostles, listen, it's going to get worse. This has been a hard week. I'm going to die, and it's going to get worse. You will have more reason to be depressed if you so choose. He says, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But I'm leaving now, Jesus is saying, and it's going to get hard. And it's going to get dark. And you may find yourself despairing. Down at the end of the chapter, he says, Behold, verse 32, An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own. And to leave me alone, and I am not alone, because the Father is with me. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Hope in God, not hope in changing things. Not hope in the good life, not hope in better circumstances. Hope in God. You're going to have problems. And your problems may go from bad to worse. Hope in God. Because He is not hope deferred. He is the delight that is a tree of life. Jesus doesn't say, Apostles, here's what I want you to do. First of all, sign up for lots of therapy. Secondly, I want you to go drown your sorrows in plenty of alcohol. And you might want to consider medical marijuana. I hear that helps. What does Jesus say? I have overcome the world. You haven't. I have hope in me. Trust in God. He says, trust also in me. Hope in God. You don't hope in your money. You don't hope in your friends. You don't hope in your job or your change of situation. You hope in God. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, gang, this is, this is it. This is what it's about in living and walking the Christian life. It is looking at all of our world around us, our circumstance, and going, whatever. Whatever. Whatever comes, how bad it may be, whatever, my hope is in God. And I'll tell you this much, I have been disappointed in hoping for things. I have never been disappointed when I've hoped in Him. And may His Spirit wash over us as we learn to do that very simple thing. Let's pray together. Jesus, You are so good. Your Spirit is refreshment, is living water to us. And I pray, Lord, for for an immense outpouring of Your Spirit. A gentle flow of Your Spirit among us that will wash away depression and sorrow from us, that will draw us to a place of great faith and trusting in You and believing You for all Your promises, but but more than that, just believing You. Teach us, Lord, to simply put our hope in You until that great day comes when hope will no longer be necessary because we will be with You in Your presence for all eternity. Father, I pray that You would lift some of the despair that plagues this body, this fellowship. Lord, that if there are those here this morning who are, who are just saddened and sorrowed and burdened out by the, by the weight of life, that they would find their joy today in You and hoping in You. I pray for deliverance, Father, in a powerful way, by Your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.